Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Apparently there is snow on the way. And while I know not everyone likes it, at least it might break the monotony a bit and I'm not just talking about the kids it'll give us all something different to look at on our stupid stupid walks sorry sorry for saying stupid twice I'm still on the gin and uh, that shows no let up because the lovely people at Dingle Distillery sent me a bottle after I wrote a column about it which was very nice of them now I'm not saying gin is the answer but whatever gets you through do you know what I mean my partner is going through Percy pigs like there is no tomorrow so each to their own uh, whatever helps that's what you should do I wanted to bring you a very quick email from a listener in a place called Grand Forks in Canada And I was thinking, imagine if you lived in Grand Forks and then someone came to your house and you had really crappy forks in your cutlery drawer. Anyway, that's just the kind of thing I think about sometimes. Anyway, this woman got in touch by email, the women's podcast at irishtimes.com with some lovely feedback about Jan Bruton's feckin' deadly poem I read out to you all last week. And she says, hello from Grand Forks, Canada. Just a quick email to applaud and congratulate Jan Bruton on her brilliant pandemic poem. I could totally, absolutely relate. I actually had a big lump in my throat when Roisin read out, all I want is a fucking hug, a chat close up with a massive mug of tea. I touch your hand. My eyes started to fill up at that point. Roisin's recital of Jan's poem evoked good memories of getting together over mugs of tea, chatting, hugging, and I realised once again that I am a hugger and that's exactly what I'm missing the most. I've been known to convert non-hugging humans into huggers. Thanks again for another terrific podcast. Don't know what I'd do without your wonderful podcasts, especially during this pandemic. Take care, stay healthy, safe and sane. All the best. Margaret Silva, Grand Forks in Canada. Well, Margaret, we're so glad you took the time to email us. And actually, Margaret, something else for a pandemic distraction. You might be happy to know that we are nearly finished finalising the guests for our third series of the women's podcast Big Night In, which is going to begin in early March and go every second Saturday night until May 15th. We'll give you more details as we have them, but anyone who's joined our Big Nights In during the last very strange year will know what a great distraction they are and how joyful and uplifting they can be too. And we've got amazing guests lined up and I know you're going to really enjoy it. So stay tuned for more information on that. Now, in today's episode, we're bringing you my conversation with Dr. Jess Taylor. She's an English woman who, after a very difficult and challenging and abusive childhood, has done really wonderful groundbreaking work around sexual assault and the prevalence of victim blaming. 
She has a book called Why Women Are Blamed for Everything, which she self-published last April. And we have her on this episode to talk about her work with the Rape Crisis Network Ireland, but also about her own company, Victim Focus, which pushes back against the narrative when it comes to male sexual violence, that women and girls are somehow to blame and they're picked apart through the courts and found to be at fault for a whole load of reasons that are absolutely spurious. As a rape survivor herself, Jess has valuable personal experience, but it's actually her experience working in Britain's magistrates courts and her PhD in forensic psychology that set her off on her current path, which is all about challenging rape myths and addressing victim blaming practices in social care, policing, mental health and support services. I think you're going to be fascinated by what she has to say. I began by asking her to tell us about the work she's going to be doing with the Rape Crisis Network Ireland. I'm really privileged to be doing this, actually. So I am going to be working with, um, I guess, to explore the experiences and the views of um, professionals that are already working to support um, survivors of sexual violence throughout lockdown and into the future um because we we want to find out you know like how has doing this type of work in a pandemic impacted them how has it changed what they do um you know have they learned anything from it and is there anything that they think that they now you know need to be able to do differently in the future right but then as part of that we also wanted to um find out from professionals working with survivors and also um from people who've been subjected to sexual violence that seek support, like their views as well. Like, what do they think these professionals should be trained on? Like, are there particular topics that they don't think they know enough about? Or are there particular topics that they think they should have very high level specialist training around? So this whole project is like getting the views of the professionals, getting the views of the survivors, working to look at, you know, everything we can do to create um, a standard of training for all professionals um, that are going to be supporting survivors of, of sexual violence so that we know that there's this consistency in what they've been taught and how they're going to work. Um, so it's it's really interesting. So we've already put the survey out for professionals and then uh, we're going to do focus groups with them and then we're putting a survey out to survivors of sexual violence and then like talk to them in focus groups as well because it'll it'll be interesting to see what professionals feel they're lacking if there's a particular thing they need training in Um, But one of the most interesting things about doing a study like this is when you then look at what the survivors tell you, it might be different. So So professionals might say, well, I feel like I need this, this and this. And then survivors might say, well, in my experience of accessing this rape centre or this support service, I actually felt they didn't know a lot about this. And then we can build something that's got that evidence base. And this is all from the fact as well, I think, that there's been a 23% increase in contacts made to rape crisis centre helplines in 2020. And I presume that's something you are seeing very much in the UK as well and, and in your work. This lockdown situation has made bad situations worse and has exacerbated things in homes all over this country and in the UK. Can you tell me a bit about what you have observed on that in your work? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. We've we've seen the same increases in domestic and sexual violence. Um, uh, I think across, I think from the research that I've looked at, there's not, there is so far not a country that has said, oh, you know, it stayed the same or it, it reduced in any way. Um, and I sometimes think that, you know, when you've got perpetrators like this who are living um, with their families, with children, with their partners, 
their 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 offenses, their perpetration, their motivations, and and their violence. It doesn't just stop because they're in a pandemic. Um, and so, obviously, a lot of perpetrators of these forms of crimes will um, sort of, I guess, justify their violence by saying, you know, I'm stressed, I've got all this going on, and like I've I've had this happen to me, and that's why I behave like this. And it's almost like you know, being in lockdown gives them almost like this perfect excuse. They're like, you know, I'm so stressed. I've got to be in the house all the time. And like, this is your fault. You're not doing enough of this and whatever. Um, So we're definitely seeing a lot of that. We saw um, in England, the homicide rates of women have significantly increased in lockdown. Uh, They went from around two to three a week to like five to six a week. Um, And I think that most, um, you know, women's services, they foresaw that. I remember talking to professionals when we first went into lockdown and everybody was saying the same thing. They're like, this is not good. This is not going to be good. Um, You know, you put perpetrators in that situation, they will take advantage of it and their violence will escalate. Um, And then obviously we will find, you know, victim blaming increasing and things like that. It was... Yeah, it's been really, I think it's been really difficult. I think we've just trapped so many victims with their perpetrators with this, like unknowingly. Um, I know that um, in England, very late in the day, it was sort of like after a lot of lobbying and activism from, you know, sexual violence and domestic abuse sectors, the government was sort of pushed to uh, provide services for if, you know, you needed to leave. Like, what if you need to leave a perpetrator or you leave your family home and take your kids or whatever it is that you need to do like what if you need to do that in a lockdown where is it you're supposed to go where are you supposed to get services from and stuff so um when we went into like this third lockdown that was the first time that they they very like clearly said and this is what we're going to provide if you need to escape violence but before that it was I don't know it was it wasn't good enough really and we've seen here as well the numbers of calls to police and the numbers of women that police are helping. I think it's gone up by around 17, 18%, that kind of thing. And again, a similar story in the UK. Uh, you, as well uh, as dealing with all of this and getting involved with the Rape Crisis Network, you, you launched a book during the pandemic too. So it's been a, a busy one for you. Um, it was sort of early on. Tell us about that book because it has a really provocative and interesting title, which is Why Women Are Blamed for Everything. Um, and you have a very interesting story yourself. So if you wouldn't mind, would you tell us about your own background and the lead up to how you ended up writing that book? It's a <laughs> that big a story. story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's it's interesting, though, because well, I've heard you talking about your own story, but also about the things that you've had to kind of you felt if you had lived experience that that would mean that you could um put that onto other people and, and it would be it may mean you'd be really good in this work but actually you've had to unpick a lot of that stuff so maybe yeah. is it okay to go back to the beginning if you don't mind um, yeah no absolutely if you've got the time well, I've got, we've got loads of time you grew up in uh, Stoke-on-Trent I did yeah I did I grew up in a really poor area on a council estate and um I was really bright like at school really loved school and I actually had a really sort of calm like younger childhood actually and um I basically we moved to this part of the estate we'd always been on the council estate but then we when my parents divorced we moved to this other part of the estate which was known to be you know I guess like worse in a way you know what the stereotypes are it's awful of like you know like 
that those types of areas. But even I remember at 11, which is when that happened, thinking, wow, this part of the council, because they were huge estates. I remember thinking, I've never even been to this part of the estate. <laughs> and that was really when everything started for me. Um, and when I was first, you know, beaten up, given drugs, trafficked, sexually assaulted. It was it was just years and years of being passed around boys and men and and always thinking that they loved me and that I was in relationships with them and and just um I was really heavily into like drugs and drink by 13 because that's what everybody did I, and I definitely wasn't alone there was lots of other girls being targeted at the same time as me and it was just it was almost like normalized like a lot of the men and you know that we hung around with and that were abusing us um were you know sort of 18 to 30 and like it was it was almost seen like oh well you know teenage girls always go for older men older boys with cars and stuff it was so normalized that men were picking us up from school in cars and everybody just thought that was like oh well you know it's teenage girls being teenage girls um so there was never any question of that so it was just, I actually, looking back on it now, the like how I live my life now and, and the way that I look, but I actually don't know how I coped. Because I, I, it's amazing what you, if you normalise something, so sexual violence, domestic violence and misogyny, you when it becomes so normalised in a society, you actually live in it every single day. You have no idea what's happening to you at all and that it's wrong and, the, and stuff. Um so I think that's actually what got me through was I actually had no idea that what was happening was wrong. So therefore, I was not necessarily like traumatised in it at that point. I was traumatised later um, because I hadn't figured it out. And then, um, yeah, I got to like, I was, I yeah, I was like with this one guy um, who was really, really violent um, and... Um, I remember the police, eventually when I went to the police when I was 18, and the, and I remember the woman uh, saying, how many times do you think he's beaten you up or raped you? And I remember just laughing at her and going, how long's a piece of string? And she, and she just sort of was like, uh, like, how do you respond to that? Um, because it was so normal in my life. And um, I also remember her saying to me, um, you do know what rape is, don't you? And I was like, yeah, of course I do. And um, she was like, well, you know, every every time he's forced you or made you do that or, you know, has threatened you or whatever, that is rape. And I was like, no, I don't think it is. I was like, he's not, you know, he doesn't drag me into a bus. She doesn't drag me into a van. He hasn't like, you know, and she was like, no, no, no. And I remember this female officer sat with me on the sofa and she explained all these different like ways you can be raped and coerced and threatened and stuff. And then she said, so how many times do you think that's happened? I just looked at her and I was like, thousands. I was like, that's my life every day. It has been since I was 11. And it was, um, you know, that's how I had my first, um, for, well, my first pregnancy. I was pregnant at 16 and I got thrown down the stairs and I had a miscarriage and I was in hospital. And I remember being in the hospital and um, it was really late at night and the perpetrator literally, I don't know how he got into that hospital. I still don't know to this day how he got onto that ward. And he basically was like, get your clothes on and get out and like pulls all the stuff off me. And I, I, and I think I was 16. Um, I still don't know how he got past the nurses or anything or why nobody followed that up. Because I don't remember anybody contacting me and being like, you came in beaten up and having a miscarriage at 16. Where did you go? because you left a ward at half past 11 at night. Um, 
And then I got pregnant by him again, um, probably about four or five months later. And the, the thing about that was that that actually happened at a time where I'd realised that I was actually being raped and abused. And I remember writing in my diary, I had this like secret diary when I was 16, where I was like, I think this guy's really dangerous and I don't want to get pregnant by this man. And I don't know what I'm going to do and don't know how I'm going to escape. And then I found out I was pregnant and I just was like, oh, what am I going to do now? Um, and I get, I, I, um, I, I kept, I kept a baby. Um, and, um, I had, I had the baby when I was 17. Um, and, um, I, I brought him up on my own and, um, kept him away from the perp and I ran away and to a, about 50 miles away and, and tried to like start again. <laughs> um, and then met, um, another man who was not as not as violent but was very very abusive he was violent several times but nowhere near the level of violence that I've been subjected to as a kid so I didn't really like pick up on it um as much because like you know you kind of convince yourself that if it isn't that bad then it can't be you know whatever um and I got pregnant again really quickly and had another baby so I've got I've got two children that are 10 and 13 um because I was really young when I had them um I'm 30 now um and it was just after I'd had the my second um baby that I just thought what are you gonna like do with your life because I'd left school at 15 because the first perpetrator didn't want me in school and didn't want me around anybody I'd left home I'd moved out I was homeless I was between my dad's and another house and another house and everything just kept going wrong and um I didn't, um, you know, finish high school. I actually turned up for my GCSEs, though, in jeans and a T-shirt because I was like, I will do these exams and I will pass these exams. And I'd not done, like, any of the revising or anything. And I actually got 12 Bs, uh, <laughs> which was a fluke. <laughs> it's obviously your natural intelligence came through. I just tell people that the GCSEs obviously are the equivalent to our junior search as well that we have here. And and then it's kind of like after having those two babies was a little bit of a turning point for you in terms of going back to education. How did that light bulb kind of turn on in your head after such a dysfunctional start since you were 11? Yeah, I was just like so mentally bored, I think, because I loved learning and and stuff like that. And I remember I was um, up in the middle of the night feeding the my second baby because he was premature. I had him at 29 weeks um and he just needed a lot of care after we both got out of hospital because I was in hospital for ages and um I went yeah so he was really tiny and I was feeding him all the time and I was just up in the middle of the night on my own and feeding him and I just had this like thing that just hit me and I and I just thought I have to like do something with my life and use my brain um and so the next day I started researching how you like volunteer for local causes so I could like do something useful because I'm 19 at this point. Um, And so I went to like a volunteer centre in the town that I lived in and was like, look, you know, I don't have a lot of spare time because I've got the two babies, but um, I can give some time to a local cause if you have any. And they interviewed me and spoke to me. And then about a week later, they phoned me and said, um, there's this position that we would like to consider you for at victim support. Um, And 
I was like, yeah, okay. And then that's where that story that you, you talked about that you've probably heard me say before is that I remember them saying to me, you know, what you're going to be doing is you're going to be supporting victims of domestic and sexual violence. And I remember thinking, well, I'm going to be great at this um, because I've lived it every day for years. And like, what more could you need? As it turns out, you need a lot more <laughs> than that. Um, and I remember thinking that I would understand how all these women and girls felt because I'd lived it. And um, that was so wrong. And it was one of the most important learning curves I ever, ever had. And I'm so glad that I had it at 19 and like really early in my career because, you know, you can go quite far into your career making assumptions and using your personal experience and thinking that you know everything. And I had that like kicked out of me really quick. Um, and that was because every every shift, every time that I worked in the court and I was supporting women and girls to give evidence in domestic and sexual violence cases on a Friday, they were just so different. Like one, like one day it's like an eight-year-old, the next day it's like a 57-year-old South Asian woman, and then the next day it's a, a woman who's been with a husband for 40 years, and then the, the next day it's a 15-year-old girl. And like they have such different lives and backgrounds. The trauma responses are completely different. The impact on them is different. Their fears are different, That you know. And it made me realise that you don't, you can't make assumptions, you know, you can't um, predict or use your own personal experience or anything like that. And so I, um, around that time, kept seeing adverts on the TV for the Open University and kept thinking I could probably do that. I was thinking maybe I could do that one day. And I remember I just put an email, like a contact form on their website and said, you know, I was interested in getting some information about a psychology degree um and I basically I remember writing in the box like I did you know I've got no A-levels and like I've, I've just got GCSEs and I don't have any other experience and they contacted me and spoke to me and then I managed to enroll on the psychology degree which I will always be grateful to the Open University to making you know for making sure that like university education is ac- was accessible especially to someone like me and um, that was it then. I was absolutely enthralled by studying. I'd really missed study. Um, and then I worked at Victim Support. I got given a job and then I got given a job in management and then in senior management. I was in the criminal justice system um, and I specialised. Um, I ran the Vulnerable Intimidated Witness Programme for five courts when I was 20. So I had three Crown Courts, two Magistrates Courts and 50 staff when I was 20, which went down like a lead balloon, um, as you can probably imagine. So there were some um, disgruntled men all right around the place. That, I, I Honestly, one, there was this one time where I got sent from head office just these new posters, just like they were just for in the waiting rooms and stuff. And I went around sticking them up and pulling the old posters down because the, the information on them was out of date. And I came into my office the next day and some of the staff who were really angry that I'd been given this job had taken down all the new stuff and shredded it and put it all over my desk like confetti. And I just sort of walked in and thought, brilliant. How? Because like at 20, I'm not like, I'm not saying that I didn't know how to do my job at 20, but uh, one of the things that I know now at 30 that I would not have put up with was that. <laughs> but I remember at 20 thinking, how am I going to manage a team that is is that angry at me for getting this job? Like, how do you work with them? And actually it did settle after about six months. And I just worked really hard every day and tried to like build their trust and work, you know, do the things that they needed and stuff. And it did eventually it did turn. Um, 
But it was around that time working in the criminal justice system that I was just seeing this victim blaming of women and girls every day, day in, day out. I felt like I was leading lambs to slaughter. It was like our job was supposed to be to protect and support victims and witnesses. And I felt like we would we were doing our best. But then they were walking into courtrooms and being, you know, oh, just ripped apart. Um, and then they would come out. And no matter if it had gone guilty or not guilty, I never worked with a woman or girl who came out of a courtroom and went, I'm glad I did that. That was that was really good. That went really well. I've never had that response. I've I've literally worked on cases where they've gone guilty over things like manslaughter, rape, trafficking, and the woman or girl still walks out and says, I wish I'd never done this. I hate it. Like, they've just treated me so badly. I'm so stressed. I've not ate, you know, properly. I've not been sleeping. You know, I've missed years of my education, you know, and I remember thinking, this can't be right. This is, this is, this is oppressive. This is, this isn't justice. So you were seeing, um, you were seeing how women and girls were being blamed and criticised for everything from their, and it's interesting, clothing is one of the things. We had a case a few years ago here, I don't know if you heard about it, it was in Cork where, uh, and actually the alleged uh, rapist, he wasn't convicted, um, I should say that, but the uh, the barrister held up uh, a lace thong that the woman had been wearing and basically said that her wearing this thong had meant that she was open to, you know, meeting someone. I mean, it's just, it was incredible at the time and there were protests and everything, but that, I suppose, is one very visceral kind of example of what you were seeing all the time. Yes, and so, I yes, I absolutely know that case and I commented on it in the press, actually. Um, but yeah, they... That's exactly right. So like when you're working in a crown court, well, we had like several crown courts. That was like my daily life was like dealing with these ridiculous defences and ridiculous lines of argument that, you know, I, I just couldn't, I just couldn't do it anymore. And I was so angry and I was coming to the end of the degree by the time I was finishing that job. And I actually then went and managed a, a rape centre. And that was my first rape centre that I managed. And, um, they were looking for someone to come in and like ch- just change everything and change their training, change how they worked, um, update everything. And I loved that job. I really, really loved that job. But one of the things then about victim blaming was not necessarily my staff or anything like that. It was partner agencies. So it was like police, social care, mental health, education, because we worked with men um, and women and girls and boys from 13 upwards um, the majority of our, of all the uh, people that we worked with were female, but um, you know we still had services for boys and men, and it was it was just such an eye opener to um, because I was managing so many cases and so many staff. I think I had like thirty one counsellors or something, um, and we had huge caseloads and waiting lists. That was when I really started to pay attention to the victim blaming of women and girls using mental health and psychiatry, which is this whole, she's got borderline personality disorder, she's psychotic, she's mentally ill, she's emotionally unstable, rather than understanding that that she's traumatised and that she's been through so much and that actually her responses are normal and natural. Why do they constitute a psychiatric diagnosis? Like, why are we, you know, medicating teenage girls who've been raped and exploited? And it was the first time I came across... Um, women and girls who were actually being given ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, after they'd been raped. And, like, people will tell you that doesn't happen anymore, but it does. And I remember working with a, I think she was 15, 15-year-old girl who'd been raped and trafficked around the local area. And even, I think it was within a year, 
they had basically said, oh, she's treatment resistant, she needs ECT. 15 years old and she was having rounds of electroconvulsive therapy because she'd been raped. And I remember her coming to my sessions and she was so concussed, she would just sleep. She would just sleep on the sofa. And I used to just keep an eye on her and let her have a rest because I used to just look at her and think, why are they doing this to you? There's, there's nothing wrong with you. you. You've been subjected to all of this violence. Why are we, ref- why is she an ECT? Um, and that was when I really started to see like the systemic victim blaming. It was around that time that I started thinking, I want to do, I want to, I want to do something around this. This is, I'm not going to let this drop. Um, and around that time, I started thinking about applying for a PhD, uh, which is pretty brave considering that I had like no A-levels. I was doing an open university degree and I had no master's degree. <laughs> and, um, I, around that time, I then went and got a national management position in child sexual exploitation and anti-human trafficking uh, when I was about 25, 25 or 24 or something like that. And um, and that was around the time that I, I started applying for, for a PhD. And um, it was... It was a bit of a shock to me when I went into working uh, very specifically in children's services, child sexual exploitation and child trafficking, because I remember there was this part of me that thought, surely victim blaming will reduce in children's services because they are children and they can't consent and they're being abused by grown-ups that are trafficking them and selling them and killing them. And the victim blaming was just as rife. There was no, I didn't see any reduction in victim blaming at all. It was, some of it was absolutely disgusting. I remember working with a family where their 12-year-old daughter had been raped and trafficked and the police had gone to her house and said to her, we will hold you responsible for the rape of all the other little girls if you don't give good enough evidence tomorrow. And I, I, I had such a row with that police force about their emotional manipulation of a 12-year-old girl. And we used to get case records through missing persons notifications of children that described girls as sluts, slags, promiscuous... Um, and this is like 2016, 2017, like this is not, you know, it's not like, I'm not like talking 20, 30 years ago. Um, so it was, yeah. So I basically approached university of Birmingham, um, in England and said, look, like I've been doing this job seven years. I know what the problem is. I want to explore it. I, and I wrote like this 5,000 word proposal in literature review because I knew there was no way I would be able to get on a PhD program through a proper application process because I wouldn't have the credentials. Um, and I had, I basically talked them into meeting like these professors of this department. I was like, I want to meet with you and tell you about what this research that I want to do. And I gave them this proposal and I think they were just a bit shocked. Um, and they gave me a place and they only gave 13 places out that year. And they gave me a place on a PhD program. <laughs> so you did a PhD in forensic psychology in Birmingham, like you said, and the, your thesis title was Logically, I Know I'm Not to Blame, But I Still Feel to blame which is kind of the precursor I suppose and all of the work you did on the PhD I'm sure ended up in in your book and it really was about exploring and measuring victim blaming and all and also which I think is really important to self-blame and I know you said you can't put your experiences onto other women but I think that's a universal thing that women when we go through things like this are so questioning of ourselves and doubting of ourselves and looking to find a place where we're responsible somehow because that's kind of what society has told us and that's the message that we get all the time so it's inevitable yeah 
Absolutely. Like we are, we, we are very much socialized from a very early age to take responsibility for male violence and for the things that are done to us and to look at ourselves. Women, uh, especially have a lot of pressure on them to like, it's almost like, look at your own issues, sort yourself out, look at what's wrong with you. Like, why is this happening to you? Which is not useful in a misogynistic society at all, especially when the crimes being committed against you are nothing to do with you. You didn't choose to be abused or raped. So why should you look at yourself at all? You know, um, so I wrote the book um, from the PhD, as you as you said, um, and I... I was so determined to write this book. I just self-published it through my like company because I went self-employed after working in child exploitation and, and trafficking because I was getting myself in trouble left, right and centre for criticising poor practice. And there was... My, my employer was very supportive and I was getting in trouble and people were deliberately submitting complaints to my employer saying, you know, she's too outspoken, she criticises local authorities, she criticises the police, she criticises the government... Um, and my employer was excellent and like my CEO she said to me like we're not gonna you're not gonna get in any trouble like we will back you up completely but she said um the problem we've got is that off funding is being threatened because of some of the things you're saying and because you're like being so critical of the CSE you know um like risk assessment tools and the ways that um children are being blamed and I remember it was around Christmas 2016 um and I went home for annual leave and I just sat on it for a few days and I thought, I am not going to put them in a position where they're going to lose hundreds of thousands of pounds of funding for children because I'm mouthy. Like, so <laughs> I decided to resign uh, from my position, which was like national training and research manager in, in exploitation and trafficking. And um, I just thought, you know, I'll have to do this on my own and set up as like a sole trader and try and do this myself. And I remember spending all Christmas, like building a website and like registering as self-employed thinking, oh, what am I doing? Um, and I just kept thinking this has to work because I have to have the power to challenge and change and, and cause change without being threatened with a P45 left, right and centre. So I needed you know, I needed to not be threatened with the sack all the time um, from, you know, different people. So I did that. And then it was, yeah, it was just so successful. I couldn't believe it. And then through the company, I decided like several years later to like publish um, why women are blamed for everything. Um, expecting to sell like 50, give one to my friends, you know, like thinking like I, I kind of told myself, once it's written down and it's out of your brain and other people can use it, that'll be it. Like you can do that. You can put it out. It's a big piece of knowledge and it's out and it's done. Um, and then it just went absolutely bonkers and it sold 10,000 copies in like four weeks. And I was just like, what the hell? Like I did not prepare for that at all. And then like loads of celebrities kept buying it and that was like really scary and shocking and like every time I went on social media there was all this like news coverage of the book and it was so yeah it was so scary and then basically what happened was that I got um I got a, an agent and then they got me a publishing deal and they bought the rights to the book and that's how the book is everywhere now and then I signed a multi-book deal so I've got to write another one that's due in in May. <laughs> Your whole story is so um I suppose inspiring is a big word but you know in terms of how you 
got on and did things when you saw something that needed to do you just went right I'm going to do it rather than waiting for some opportunities to come to you and I think that's how you've lived your life but just going on the book um in the book there's hundreds of studies that basically show how and I'm reading from the blurb here I think that they we, we pick at women and girls until we find something wrong with them or something they did wrong to explain, and I'm using inverted commas, to explain why they were raped or abused or even murdered. Can you, uh, it's a big, it's a big book and there's a lot in it, but maybe can you just dilute that for us a little bit? And also I should say there'll be some people listening thinking it's not just women who are victims, but let's just say your work concerns the women and girls who are, who are survivors and victims. And you're perfectly entitled to look at that. There's other people who look at um, male victims of violence, which we know there are. But I just want to get that in there because I know some people will be thinking that. Yes. Yeah. Like Actually, if anybody's listening and they're interested, Dr. Emma Sleeth, she is an expert in the victim blaming and rape myth acceptance of men and boys who've been raped. And her work is awesome. And I cite her in my work because she published her stuff about three years before I published mine. So Emma had already covered all of that. Um, and believe it or not, it was actually the understanding the culture of victim women of women and girls that hadn't been explored. So it's really interesting that it had actually already been done. It's, I think it's often that um, some people just assume that we don't do that research with men and boys. So they think, oh, men and, you know, men and boys are being ignored. And actually they're not. The, the research is being, has been done. It does exist. Um, but you don't make any okay. apologies for centering women in your work, basically. No, absolutely not. And I don't think anybody should. I think that women and girls are, you know, they are their own group, their, their own experiences. And we should, I think with any type of science, any type of study, you should be able to centre a group and not have to explain why you didn't include somebody else. Because you don't have to do that in any other kind of study. Um, and I also think that, for example, say if somebody said, well, you should have included men in the book, I would actually argue that wouldn't the, wouldn't the sexual abuse and rape of men deserve its own book? Why should I lump it into this just so that someone can say, oh, well, she did include men in this chapter? I think that men's experiences of being abused and raped and, um, you know, harmed are, they're important, but they're, they're important in their own way that they deserve their own sets of theories and their own studies. It shouldn't be an add-on to something else. Um, so, yeah, I feel quite strongly that at the end of the day, we have literally had, um, you know, let's say probably just over a thousand years of academia now that has pretty much used men and boys as the default for absolutely everything in medicine, in all forms of science, in psychology, in psychiatry. So, um I, I don't I don't really have time for people that sort of suggest that um I should I shouldn't be centering women and girls because we've actually never centered women and girls in anything. <laughs> so but anyway, um in terms of the 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 book and I guess what you picked out in the blurb there is um really what we see when a woman or a girl has been subjected to male violence is an attack it's like an attack that comes in stages so the first thing that tends to happen is we attack her behavior and that's called behavioral blame and so that'll be like where was she what was she doing why was she wearing that why did she get in a taxi why is she using a dating app why is she uploaded those photos to the internet so it's about attacking her behavior and then trying to correct her behavior like well she shouldn't do that in the future well you know if she didn't do that she'd never be in that position when the behavioral blame of woman or girl doesn't cut it, it doesn't explain it we tend to then move to attack the character of that woman or girl which is called characterological blame 
And so that's about, you know, oh, she's naive, she's stupid, she's promiscuous, she's easy, she's vulnerable, she's not resilient enough, she's too confident, she's too trusting, she's flirty. And it's about picking out something that was wrong with her that explains why she was raped or abused. Um, And the theories that I cover in the book is like looking at like, why do we do that? What motivates us to find what is wrong with a victim rather than having some sort of like, I don't know, almost like a comfort where we can, where we can comfortably say, no, the perpetrator was completely to blame. The perpetrator chose to commit those crimes. The perpetrator made an active decision to target that victim and then harm them on purpose for their own gratification. But we are not at that. We're we're not there. We don't do that. And instead we pick apart um, the victim of that crime. And that does happen with men and boys as well. Absolutely. Um, But the victim blaming of women and girls is very specific because it's wrapped up in misogyny and in um, gender role stereotypes and things like that. Jess, I think one really good example for me that I've read you speaking about is um, the fat woman or the overweight woman and then the sort of slim or conventionally attractive, uh, according to society, woman. Can you talk us through those two things about how both of those states of being can get you blamed? Because you can't do right for doing wrong, basically, is, is is the thing. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. So when you look at what's called individual factors in the research, like what the individual woman, what does she look like and stuff like that, one of them that really interests me is her body shape or her body weight. And that was because there's been research um, since about 2000 and probably about 2009, 2010 that started looking at what happens when a woman reports rape depending on whether she's slim or whether she's seen as overweight and whether she's seen as conventionally attractive or not attractive. And so the one study found that when women are um, seen as overweight or conventionally sort of like not attractive or desirable, they are very likely to have their cases um, dropped. And if they do get to court, they're very likely for that case to go not guilty. And they looked at why that was and they said that it was because juries and uh, judges tend to believe that only like attractive women are targeted and that if you are unattractive or you are overweight and you've been raped and abused it must be because you deserved or you did something wrong right and that it was almost like a punitive thing or on the other hand you're actually making it up because a man wouldn't want to rape you anyway and like there's that and then What's so interesting is that around the same time, there was another study that looked at attractiveness that found that when women were seen as conventionally very attractive and slim and, you know, looked very feminine and desirable, when they reported being raped, they also have the same likelihood of having their cases dropped or going uh, not guilty in court because um, they're seen as asking for it or leading men on and that the man couldn't help himself. So you are literally stuck aren't you? As long as they can find some reason that you, uh, that the woman or the girl uh, is complicit and that couldn't be anything from how they look to whether they had a drink. So it's basically the picking apart instead of, which I suppose is what you're working uh, towards, a utopia where we see this as a violent thing. It's not about anything to do with the person who's the victim. It's about a violent um, trend in society and that's what we need to be looking at. So 
Do you feel like there is movement being made? This socialization that you talked about earlier, which uh, which means that us women, even we blame ourselves, we blame other women, even victims yep. and survivors blame other people, even though they've been through it themselves because the, the socialization yep. is so strong. I mean, it, it kind of in a way seems so pervasive that is there anything that can be done or do you feel it's moving a different way? I'm looking for some hope here, Jess. <laughs> I know you are. I know. <laughs> um, unfortunately. Um, no, I, to be honest with you, I actually think it's getting worse at the moment. I think misogyny is, is having... Have you, I don't know if you've ever heard this phrase before, or whether like, um, people listening have ever heard this before, but they tend to say with every wave of feminism and women's rights, you get a peak of misogyny. Because as women become more powerful and start talking about their experiences, you'll get a backlash that shoves it back down, which is why feminism tends to move in waves. Um, because you'll get a peak as, as women start talking more and become more powerful. And then you'll get a drop, which is like where the backlash really kicks in. Women start getting silenced and women, you know, start getting discriminated against or rights get removed from them and things like that. Um, so at the moment, I think it's actually getting worse. Um, but in terms of hope, there is things we can do and they're actually not that difficult. Like we could change the way we talk about sexual violence in the media. Um, I've got an event actually that I'm doing for free for journalists this summer to like, if they wanted to learn how to use their language to report on sexual and domestic violence without positioning victims as the problem. Um, so we can change that. We can also put pressure on, you know, police and prosecution services to change the way that they work, which is happening already in England because we've got the um, Centre for Women's Justice uh, currently challenging the Crown Prosecution Service on why our, our rape conviction rates at the moment in, in England are 1%, um, which is the lowest they've ever been. Um, so we can do work around that. We can also do a lot to educate and influence children um, because quite a lot of sex education, relationships education is quite victim blaming when you look at it. And it'll sometimes it'll be like they show them a video of like a girl that's talking to someone online or a boy that's talking to someone online. And then they go and meet them and then they're abused. And then the, the questions from the teacher is things like, well, what did the child do? Or what could they have done differently? Or why didn't they tell somebody? Or why didn't they report it? Or, you know, what should they have done? And the thing is, what we're doing is like bringing up another generation of victim blamers that just look. So the whole exercises in like sex and relationships education and online safety are almost about teaching children to pick out what that child did wrong and what they should have done, uh, which is not useful at all. It's it's really sort of um, encouraging victim blaming in society. So there's things we can do around that. I think that we need to, um, and I'm going to be doing quite a lot of work on this over the next few years, I think there's a lot we can do to be challenging mental health sectors um, to stop medicating and diagnosing traumatised women and girls who've been subjected to sexual violence with psychiatric disorders that they can't get off their files. People often don't realise that once you have been diagnosed so say, for example, you're traumatised and you're presenting with all these trauma symptoms and then somebody says, oh, well, actually, I think it's borderline personality disorder. I think you're psychotic or this, you know, you're emotionally unstable or whatever. I think you've got bipolar. Once that's on your record, the, the true irony of mental health is the more you say you're not mad, the madder you look. OK, so the more you say, no, I do not have that disorder I have been abused for X amount of years, the more you're going to look like you're unstable because that's the way the diagnostic system works. So what you get then is women and teenage girls trapped in a system where the more they um, protest, 
the more they get medicated and the more that they'll be diagnosed. So we have to look at completely um, changing that system. We have to look at the misogyny and the racism and the homophobia that's in psychiatry and mental health that people often don't feel very comfortable talking about. Um, there is, so there is quite a lot that we can do. I, I also think that like even these things, like you know, there's going to be loads of people listening to this. And that's why I do so much media engagement because getting um, the debate and the discussion going and like being able to reach people that would never have known who I was and be able to talk about the fact that women and girls are never to blame for being subjected to sexual and domestic violence. Like it's 0% blame. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's not even, it's not even, you can't, you can't be like, oh, well, in some cases they might be a bit to blame. No, they're not. Like, because a perpetrator chose to attack them. And so it's all on them. It was their choice. Um, so like just getting that message across and to be and to take a really hard line on it um that it's not um you know up for debate whether women and girls could cause this or sh- or maybe they shouldn't have worn that or you know maybe they shouldn't have walked home no perpetrators shouldn't do horrible violent nasty disgusting things and you also are you're very good on language and very you know strong about it that you don't like to say things like uh, women who've experienced rape you like to yeah. call it what it is. So what do you say instead of that? So you'll have noticed that I say women and girls have been subjected to male violence or sexual violence. But the reason that I don't like experienced is because it sounds like it was like a metaphor. It's like that she experienced a rape. Like by what? Osmosis? Like how did it happen? Like it was, it, it was, it was, she was subjected to it. It's a form of violence and oppression. It was, it was done to her by somebody else. Um, who chose to do it. So I remember like when the language was always like, oh, you know, then people aren't doing it in a, um, you know, a harmful or negative way. There's no malice. People are saying, oh, we support survivors who've experienced sexual violence. It was just that it feels like too neutral and I don't like it. I think that it, what it does is it erases the offender from the offence. So I prefer to use like active language that's like, no, that was done on purpose by somebody else. Yes, I think it was really inspired for the Rape Crisis Network to reach out to you and to sort of look for your help in all of this in terms of how people are trained uh, to, to talk to survivors, to help them through everything. So maybe we'll just finish with that. You're obviously excited about the work you're going to be doing. Yeah, of course. Like This is, this is so important. So I've just spent like 11 years, this is what I specialise in, is like building training packages and then testing them and checking whether they can actually shift um, attitudes, whether they change practice and things like that. Um, And I do that for police forces and, you know, like all different services and charities, local authorities. And it's, um, it's really interesting to see what you can shift with training and what is a lot harder and needs more work. So with this, it's so exciting because we're doing it from a really evidence-based way. It's co-created. It means that we can get the views of all these professionals. We can get the views of survivors of sexual violence on what they think that professionals need to know and and need to be trained in before they take on this kind of work and try and standardise it and create this like gold standard of like, this is what you need to know. This is what you should be trained in before you can work in sexual violence. And I think that that's been a long time coming because, you know, you can come across people that work within sexual violence that do give out really harmful views. Like you can sometimes come across therapists that will victim blame their clients, psychologists that victim blame. I come across that a lot. You you know, the, the people that are meant to help 
um, can do a lot of damage. I know, like, even for myself, I remember when I was 18, I rang a rape helpline. <laughs> and it, it makes me laugh now, but it was horrific at the time. I just cried and put the phone down. And um, she, I told her what had happened and she listened to me and she was actually quite good. And then she just went quiet and went, you know, some things are just meant to happen to you. Bloody and, hell. And I went, I was like, sorry, what? And she was like, you know, if if this is what God wanted for you, then that is what, that's what happened. Like that this is part of your life. Like, and you know, um, this is what, this is God's will. And I was like, okay, bye-bye. <laughs> like I was just, I never, and I never rang another rape helpline, never. Um, I actually like much later on in life got like therapy and counseling, all sorts of things, but I never rang another helpline after that until I was maybe like, I don't know, mid twenties. Jess, before you go, I think people will want to know uh, that things turned out well for you. You've got a 10 and a 13 year old now, and um, I hope that you managed to find a loving partner or uh, a stable sort of uh, after all that trauma that you went through as such a young person. Yeah, absolutely. It was actually um, there's lots of people that follow me that know that I, I came out as lesbian when I was 28 um, which was was a bit scary. It wasn't as scary as I thought it was going to be. But I think for me and for lots of women and girls who've been subjected to male violence, you don't get chance because of heteronormativity to like figure out that you're actually gay or lesbian. And like for me, I knew that like when I was eleven, um, that I that there was some girls that I was really attracted to, and then like I, I there was a few girls that I met when I was growing up. But because of being in trafficking and then in prostitution and stuff like that, when I was a little bit older. Um, I just never figured it out. And then as I got older and my life settled and I got, and I sort of tuned into who I was and went through all my own stuff, I I just sort of realized I'm actually not attracted to men at all. Never have been, even as like when I was really, really little. Um, and yeah, I was really lucky that, um, I had, I, I'm, I've been with my partner, um, and I've been with her for two years next month. And, um, she was my best friend for years and um she, we ne- I I I say to her all the time I would never have told her how I felt like never because I just thought she was the most awesome woman I'd ever met in my life and she's absolutely beautiful and she's just so intelligent and hilarious and I never ever would have told her and then 2 years ago um she just she just told me she was just like I've I've had feelings for you for ages and I didn't know how to tell you and I was like oh my god me too um and yeah and then we like spent about six months trying to make a decision on what to do and took it really slow and everything and then we and then we decided to like go public and tell people that we were together and honestly it's just been an incredible it's such a amazing life-changing experience being with somebody that truly loves you and that you're so happy and so content all the time and we've done yeah we've done a lot together we travel a lot and the kids are really happy and content and doing really well and we bought a house just before Christmas in the countryside and it's it's just been it's been amazing. And like I if I'm gonna finish on anything, it's like that's why we should be trauma informed and strength based, right? You can go through so much as a child that does not write you off, that is not your that's not gonna define you, that's not who you are. What other people chose to do to you is not your life. That's not you know, you've not been like written this sort of outcome that's gonna that's gonna be you for the rest of your life and that's why I work so hard against like this deficit-based negative way of working with victims of abuse because I genuinely believe that anybody who's been subjected to violence abuse oppression and trauma could be anybody they could be anybody in life anybody they want to be and it is 
it's really important that professionals don't, you know, oppress that and dampen that by like lowering their expectations and telling them that they're traumatized, they're damaged, they're ill, that sort of thing. So, yeah. Well, Dr. Jess Taylor, I do think that is an amazing place to leave it. Um, you, uh, Your work is incredible. We're so glad that you're getting involved in Ireland and I think you're going to make a huge impression and it's brilliant that you're working together with the Rape, Rape Crisis Network and we'll maybe have you back when you're a bit further along with it to talk about it. And also, I'd love to hear more details about your um, course for journalists as well, which I think is really, really important. So we'll keep in touch with you about that as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Dr. Jess Taylor there and her company, if you want to look it up, has loads of resources in this area. It's called Victim Focus and it's well worth a look through. And do get in touch with us by email thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com or on social at IT Women's Podcast about anything you'd like us to cover or anything at all. We love hearing from you. That's all we have time for. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Jennifer Ryan and Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 